for building a tower. Acts chapter 7, we'll be starting at verse 54. As you turn there, if you're looking for a Bible, we have one in the chair uh, in front of you somewhere, a blue one. Um, and if you just turn to page 534, you'll get to where we're going to be at. If you don't have a Bible and you would like one, please take that one, um, just with one stipulation that you read it, starting with the Gospel of John, let's say, which is a great one talking about Jesus. Someone betrays you and it hurts, right? We all have had those instances in our lives. I'm sure if I just said those words, you're kind of flashing back to a certain instance in your life where somebody hurt you. And, um, well, it could be like 50 years later and you're still trying to get over it. We live in a world of revenge. It, it's in shows. If you watch reality TV, my family and I like to watch uh, a Survivor, uh, which is... I'm pretty sure it's all about revenge. Um, it's always about trying to get back at someone. Uh, there's shows, there was actually a show not too long ago called Revenge, which was actually not on a new concept. It was based upon Alexander Damas's novel, The Count of Monte Cristo, from 1844. Our culture is obsessed with revenge. If someone hurts me, it's my right to go hurt them. And we've seen some instances throughout recent history, especially when somebody kills somebody else. Not too long ago, there was a police officer that killed somebody in their home and listening to the testimony of their family, forgiving that person for what they did. Heart-wrenching. And as I listen to that, I go, well, how in the world could they possibly do something like that? You know, we all have this seemingly almost natural uh, ability to be vindictive and to seek revenge. But in Jesus, uh, in his prayer that he teaches the disciples, he actually calls them to f for God to forgive as we forgive, he says. And further in Matthew 16, it actually says flat out, if you're unable to forgive, you're not forgiven. And then I'm hit with this man named Stephen. He's different. He's a different breed of guy. We see what it means to be full of the Spirit with Stephen. How that changes his attitudes towards those who are wronging him. We see the present implications of the gospel in his life. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to Acts chapter 7. And as we do that, just keep in mind what has happened so far with just Stephen. Stephen was preaching the gospel he was speaking the message about Jesus, that Jesus Christ, the one who was killed on the cross, was the Messiah, and that he died for our sins, and that he rose again. 
He gets dragged uh, towards the Sanhedrin, to the council, where he again gives this amazing defense of the gospel where Olamide was kind enough to read for us. Because, you know, I'm really bad at reading out loud. And today, we're at the end of Stephen's life. Just a short, little picture of his life. So in Acts chapter 7, verses 54 onwards, it says this. The word of the Lord says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. Let's pray. Father, we come to continue to worship you. That's what this is. This isn't a chance to have ears tickled, but to learn more about who you are. So Lord, I want to preach so that you are glorified and magnified, and God, I can't do this on my own, so will you not make this turn out well? By your Spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. Give me the power and the affection. Use this sermon, God, above all things, to bring glory to your name. May we not leave this place without saying how great are you. May it bring joy to your people and salvation to the lost. And amen. In verse 54, we see the look of unbelief. And with the final comment that Stephen has just said, you remember last week we saw that he calls these people who are about to stone him stiff-necked people. Great way to evangelize. Actually, it's probably the right way. You need, you're a sinner and you need to be saved. And their response to that comment of him proclaiming the message about Jesus is this unbelief, and it shows up in how they act. They are enraged, Luke says, which means that they're full of rage, uncontrollable actions, thoughts that will result in the ultimate murder of, Jesus, of Stephen. They ground their teeth at him. So they kind of showed their teeth and just, you know, clenched their jaws. The Old Testament shows that the gnashing of teeth as a sign of hostility and rage. The irony is that it's often the wicked showing it towards the righteous. And when we look at the Gospels, like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's the response of those who are excluded from the kingdom of God that gnash their teeth. So as they're gnashing their teeth at Stephen for the declaration of the message about Jesus, it's truly showing the status of their hearts. The reaction of the Sanhedrin shows what they truly felt. They felt exposed and condemned by what Stephen has said in his defense. How dare you? You're wrong. Again, there are only two responses to God's word accept and repent and live 
or reject, remain, and die. I was reminded of a quote by a pastor from the States called Eric Reed, named Eric Reed. He put it this way, in all my years of pastoring, I have learned this lesson. A person's spiritual maturity is not truly visible until they don't get their way. Then you see the person. And we see the person here. The Sanhedrin shows its true colors as their response to God's word, and they don't like what he has to say, so they respond with hostility. Let's shut him up. We're going to stone him. But Stephen, as he faces this difficulty, he's doing something different. His eyes are firmly fixed on the prize, Jesus Christ. So in verse 55, in verse 55, we see that Stephen's eyes are fixed. Fixed on who he is. In verse 55, it says, but he, full of the Holy Spirit. Again, this is the third time we see this character given to Stephen. First, we see Stephen introduced as a man who helps in the distribution of, of what is needed for the widows. And he's described as a man full of the spirits. And Stephen remains calm in the face of such anger are examples of how he is full of the Spirit. But what does it mean to be full of the Spirit? And we can get confused really quickly of what that means, but lucky for us, we have God's Word, and it tells us. There's an indwelling of the Spirit that every Christian has. John 14, 16 says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever says that all Christians have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and that it's permanent. You can't lose it. But there's a difference between indwelling and, the, and being filled with the Spirit. Because even Ephesians 1 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwelling the Christian is a permanent thing. It's actually part of our sealing that happens. You can't lose it. If you lost the Holy Spirit, you'd lose your salvation, and you can't lose your salvation. As I think it was John MacArthur said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. But there's something else when it comes to the full, being full of the Holy Spirit. Even though the indwelling is permanent, permanent. Does that mean that we can lose the indwelling of the Spirit? No, absolutely not. So what is being full of the Spirit means? Because as we see in Acts, being full of the Spirit is a temporary thing. It seems to happen for a specific time, at specific moments, for a specific task. So be full of the Spirit is to be controlled by the Spirit in every act, thought, motivation, everything. But the problem here is that in Ephesians 4, it talks about how we can quench the Spirit. Or in 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians says we can quench the Spirit. These are all things that happen as we as Christians who have the indwelling of the Spirit by choice choose to walk in a way that doesn't bring God the glory when we sin. In our actions or our attitudes. We don't experience the fullness of the Spirit working and His power in and through us. So when Stephen was being full of the Holy Spirit, it means the Spirit occupied every part of his life. He controlled everything about him. There's not one thing that he was doing that wasn't being controlled by this. 
by the Holy Spirit. It's when the Holy Spirit works and the fruit that grows is done is for the glory of God. And as Psalm 19 says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be accessible in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And that means that the Holy Spirit just doesn't affect our actions, but our, our, our innermost being, our motives and our actions. So Stephen, is, his eyes are so fixed on Christ, the prize that he was full of the Holy Spirit, and it changes every part of his life as he faces the gnashing of teeth, in, as he does, faces the gnashes of, gnashing of teeth for what he has proclaimed about Jesus. In verse 56, he's, he's so full of the Spirit that he says, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The Sanhedrin has heard this before, right? Back in Mark 14, Jesus says, they say to Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus replies in 1462, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. What Stephen sees is proving the truth of what he had said and condemned and as being condemned for right now by the Sanhedrin. Jesus has received kingdom authority. And we spent some time the last couple of weeks as we've gone through the New City Catechism talking about that, about Jesus' humanity, but also Jesus' deity. So how do, we, how do the people respond to Stephen declaring that Jesus is the Christ? They respond the same way to Stephen as they did to Jesus. The very person that the Sanhedrin had stoned for blasphemy, claiming to be the Son of God, the one that Stephen declared, is standing at the right hand of God, proving Jesus is exactly who he said he is. And that word open is actually a really cool word. It's the perfect passive participle, and don't worry about all of that stuff. But essentially what it means is that God himself opened the, win the, the window so that Stephen could see. And what Stephen is proclaiming up until his very last breath, that Jesus is indeed the Christ that he alone is able to save, that not the temple, not the, not the Mosaic law, none of those things could save, but only Jesus can save. And that's what Jesus said about himself and what his followers said about him is all true. Stephen's eyes were so firmly fixed on Jesus. And I think we can get distracted. Often, I do. It's like, ooh, squirrel, ooh. And I had one of those instances in the, this week, right? Because I got stuck on, well, why is he standing? I was like, why is he standing? I spent maybe a day just thinking about that. Why is he standing? The point is, it doesn't matter. That's what it came to. Because this is a Christological statement talking about Jesus and who he is. What are the things that we learn about who Jesus is, right? When, with Stephen's uh, words, he is the son of man. And he is at the right hand of God. What is the Son of Man? Jesus is fully God, as we see in John 1.1, but he's fully human, as we see in John 1.14. Jesus is both Son of God and Son of Man, meaning Jesus is truly human, who suffered at the hands of humanity to pay the price for our sins, fulfilling all what the prophets had pointed to. But what does it mean to be seated at the right hand of God? 
To be seated at the right hand of God is to, be, uh, to have equal honor with God himself. To be recognizing him at, in a position of equal dignity and authority. Ephesians 1 talks about how God exalts Jesus above all others by seating him at the right hand of the Father. Jesus, the Son of God, has the same authority, the same dignity as God the Father. He is of equal position. He's not a subcategory. He's not some demigod or whatever. He is God. And he alone is only able to pay the price for our sins. He has the same honor and power and authority. And for this declaration of who Jesus is, that's what happens in verse 58, when they cast him out to the city and stone him. So in the response, in the people's response, in refusing to see God at work in Jesus and to trust God's finished work in Jesus, they stone him. They stone Stephen. The people have kept the commands of God for other reasons other than loving God and loving their neighbors. It's like they came to church because that's what they were supposed to do. And not because they love to be with God's people, the bride of Christ, and worship the one who saved them. They've upheld traditions and looked for evidence of faith through what they've done rather than resting in the finished work of God. The light was being shone on their dark hearts and they react with hatred to that light. They take Stephen out of the city, and this is very ironic, actually, because remember what they've done already. They've already done false witnesses against Stephen. So they've already broken the law that they're killing Stephen for quote-unquote blasphemy. And now they're bringing them outside the city to stone them because actually the law says you can't stone them in the city. And a young man named Saul, Saul who would become Paul, is a Pharisee and he's part of the Sanhedrin. The man who wrote much of what we have today in God's word was an adamant and violent opponent to the message about Jesus, the gospel. God wouldn't allow him to just be a coat checker though. As Stephen's faced all of this, his actions, his motives, were all governed by being full of the Spirit because his eyes were fixed upon Christ, and that made him different. As we see in verses 59, we see Stephen's Christ-likeness as he sleeps. In order for Stephen to say what he says, while what is happening is happening, requires not just an action, but his innermost thoughts and motiv motivations. Stephen being full of the Spirit was shown in his prayer to God as the people were stoning him. Let me ask you, when was the last time you stubbed your toe on the corner of your bed or banged your head on the bookshelf or whatever it is? What was the first reaction? I bet it wasn't, oh, praise God for the bookshelf or the bed. I know it's not for me. Like, I was laughing about this for myself, and I'm trying to be kind of funny, but at the same time, I'm hoping you're making you think about it. You know, if I bang my thumb under a hammer, it's not, thank you, Jesus, for the hammer. 
But Stephen is getting pelted with stones. He's getting pelted with stones, and not like these little pebbles, okay, that the boy would throw at the girl on the playground, okay? These are stones with the purpose of causing harm and damage, with maliciousness, with gnashing of teeth, and they weren't just lobbed. These guys were doing it like a fast pitch, fastball pitch. And as he's getting pelted with stones, Stephen is praying that God would not hold the sins of those who are stoning them, him against him. See, you see what being full of the Spirit does. You see how it changes you. What happens when our eyes are fixed on Christ? Because the gospel doesn't just have a past implications of our lives. It has a past, present, and future implications of our lives. It changes us in the presence. It's what we were just talking about right now with one of our elders, Peter, as he brought our eyes to the future, as we fixed on, on, on being with Jesus forever. It changes in verse 59, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And just like Jesus, Stephen cries out in the midst of agony. The same thing that Jesus, his Savior, does. And just as Jesus committed his spirit to his divine Father in death, Stephen does the same by committing his spirit to Jesus Christ, his divine Savior. And he gets into the prayer in verse 60, right? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Like, he, he's reflecting and imitating Jesus so much that even his death is a testimony to Christ. Even his death is a testimony to Christ. And he prays for them. He's imitating the Savior who died for him, saving him from eternal damnation and forgiving him of his sins. So that Stephen, who didn't deserve any of what Christ has given him, could have the relationship with the one he was created to be with. And Stephen is so much like his Savior that he also prays for the forgiveness of the people who are responsible for his death. And God answers that prayer. He answers it through saving at least one. Spoiler. Acts 9 is a great testimony of God radically getting into someone's life. As he says, the man who looked on with approval at the stoning of one of his own. So when Jesus comes and says to Paul, or Saul, sorry, on the road to Damascus, why are you persecuting me? This is the event he's thinking about. This is not a reminder of how Christians should die. This is a model for Christians who face persecutions. Do you see the contrast that Luke is drawing here? Luke shows on one hand between a desperate, enraged defense of condemned traditions and on the other hand, strength and contentment and rest and peace in the one who's victorious. You got to ask yourself, as I have been, what does your life show? Do your actions and attitudes reflect the one who you claim has saved you and forgiven you? 
Think about Stephen's actions towards those who were killing him. There's an interesting observation if you keep what is happening in the greater context of the book of Acts. We are encouraged, and, and I encourage you to read through the whole book in one sitting if you can. Like I think I said it took about two hours. Again, you probably will sit for two hours and watch a sporting event today. I think. I don't know. I'm going to the Super Bowl for the food and the people. But someone, it's possible that through our forgiveness, that someone just like this young man named Saul might come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. See, bitterness is really, really, really easy to hold on to. And some of us hold on to it like it's our job, like it's our identity. And because of that, we can't do what Stephen does here. Stephen could not pray what he prayed with bitterness in his heart. And Jesus did this. And we can say, yeah, but, you know, Jesus was God. But let me remind you of Hebrews 4, verse 15, that says that he was tempted just as you were tempted, yet remained sinless. And here we see a person just like you and me, who was a sinner, reacting in this way, forgiving much in the same way that he had been forgiven. See, Stephen forgave the people who were killing him while he was being killed. And when I read this and I meditate on this and ask what I'm learning about who Jesus is and who I am and what this passage calls me to be, and we have some confessing and some repenting that has to happen, right? If there is bitterness in your heart, will you confess that sin of bitterness and say to God, Lord, I'm willing to forgive this or that person? Because holding on to your bitterness, your unwillingness to forgive, will only lead to, uh, well, spiritual problems. It is time to put an end to the hardness of your heart. Think about how God could use that in the life of the one you're forgiving. So Stephen was so willing to forgive the people who were stoning him because he was full of the Spirit, because he understood the grace God so lavishly poured out on him. And I was, as I was reading this, I was going, God, help me to be more aware of the grace that you've poured out on my life. I heard it said not too long ago that you don't understand how amazing God's grace is until you understand how holy God is until you really understand what your sin is to God. Because in his abundant grace, he saved a wretch like me, like you. That should be a pretty decent sized arrow to your heart. I know it has been for me. And you and I probably have never seen or experienced what Stephen has. The case in point, you're here. You're alive. And when we compare what we have experienced to what Stephen has, I think suddenly some of our own personal experience kind of start to get a little smaller. I'm not minimizing them. But Stephen was able to forgive as he was being stoned. 
So let me ask you this. Is there an unforgiving spirit within you that is encouraging bitterness and anger towards others? One of the songs we sang today talked about how we are united in Christ. We can be united in Christ and we can bear with one another, we can forgive one another because it all comes out of an idea that we've been forgiven. And Stephen shows us the way to be spirit-filled and Jesus-like and Stephen's forgiveness towards those stoning him shows me understanding shows how he understood the grace of God and how God had abundantly poured it out upon him. Jesus did say in Matthew 6, 15, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's hard and is impossible outside of understanding what God has done for you. Because the more we understand how holy God is, we will understand how abhorrent our sin is. And the more we understand how abhorrent our sin is, the more we will be amazed by God's grace towards us. And then we can forgive others who have sinned against us. And as that, and, that, and we can pray that. And as that prayer left Philip or Stephen's mouth, as that last stone hit him in the face, as he fell to his knees, it says right there, and when he has said this, he fell asleep. What does it look like to fall asleep? I'm a parent. I have three children. I've had the blessing of having that. And one of my favorite things ever is evening snuggles and watching my child fall asleep. Unfortunately, that's come to we still, it's, it's, bedtime's a long time. But it's still a blessing, and I love it, right? If you've ever seen a child fall asleep, a baby in a crib, or whatever, I'm sure you've at least seen a movie. <laughs> they just are so peaceful. They're resting in your arms, snuggled up in your neck, breathing on your neck, and you're trying not to, like, squirm with tickling. Stephen knew that this momentary suffering that he was going through was just that, momentary. But once his eyes shut, he knew that that suffering would be for the last time, and that when he opened them again, he would see Jesus. I've always found it interesting when the Bible describes someone as falling asleep when they're dying. Like, why don't they just say they died? But for the Christian, this is true. Death has no victory. This isn't the end of our story, but the beginning. The Christian knows this. The Christian knows that each person is made for life beyond the temporal. God created us to enjoy an endless life with him. And Stephen knew that to know God is far better, is far richer, more joyous than anything this, would, this world could ever give him. So he could just fall asleep. This is an expression that only Christians can use to communicate an assured future resurrection. So Jesus talked about how a person who lives for the, the here and now is a fool and where to put your treasure. 
and how we face death is often a very telling part of what we are living for in the here and now. God made us to live by our hopes, and and when you are in Christ, you have a real joy of anticipation of heaven as you get older. You know, I understand that I'm really young, especially for some of you. I don't feel like it some days, but I understand. But a few years ago, I remember I was talking with a senior saint who was mentioning about how getting old sucks. Their words, not mine. And I kind of, I was like, yes, you know, trying to be sympathetic. And then it quickly dawned on me. I'm like, wait, I still have 40-odd years left. You're closer to glory than I am. There should be an anticipation, an excitement almost. And that's what Stephen has. His eyes are so fixed upon Jesus. His hope was so found in him that as those stones were coming, the momentary suffering of all that pain and anguish and suffering, the gnashing of teeth, the lying about him, whatever it was, that it didn't matter in comparison to the richness of knowing Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And we're all probably not going to die like Stephen, but we're going to die sooner or later. So let me preface that, unless, of course, you know, Jesus comes back. But what awaits us spurs us on to desire it more and more, should it not? And should that not affect how we live our lives in the here and now and how we face the end of our lives? Derek Thompson reflected upon one of the great Puritans, John Bunyan, and his book, Pilgrim's Progress. The Pilgrims, the Puritans taught us, he says, uh, to see this life as a gymnasium preparing us for heaven. This is why saintly John Bunyan, who ex- um, experienced 12 years in prison for his faith, away from his beloved wife, his blind daughter wrote the pro- Pilgrim's Progress. See, Bunyan saw that our lives are a journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. In the days when his readers knew only rudimentary medicine and surgery and knew nothing of social security or insurance, life was hard and unforgiving. More than half the population died in infancy, and disease caught up with most of the rest sooner or later. They would have been lost had they not kept their eyes on heaven and believed themselves pilgrims traveling home to a better place. Stephen's death was so powerful that even young Paul, when he's an older Paul, would reflect upon it in Acts 20. Stephen's life showed how he was resting in and how he held so tightly to the treasure of knowing Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He was growing in the grace and the knowledge of his Lord and Savior. So are your, is your life, what does your life show you're resting in? Are you growing in the grace and the knowledge of your Lord and Savior that you, can be forgi- that, that you can forgive as Jesus forgave you, as Stephen forgave the ones who were pelting him with stones? Can he face the coming death 
we all face with the calmness of just simply falling asleep. And we end with this quick yet very important observation by Luke in Acts 8 verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. I love this part, to be honest, because it reminds me of God's providence. Think about all the things that Stephen goes through. This is the catalyst that disperses the church in Jerusalem. It's because of Stephen's death that Christians scatter through the known world. This is why Saul ends up going on the road to Damascus to go arrest other Christians. God is providential. There is nothing outside of his control, but providence means that there's nothing that doesn't have a design and purpose. What we intend for evil, God intends for good sometimes. So here we see this in something that's very important. In the midst of the worst incidents yet for the persecuted church, that we see the most amazing thing. And this is greater than what we hear, what we hear about Stephen. It's, it's short, this little section here, that Saul approved of his execution. But when we look at the context, you have to ask yourself, well, who's Saul? It's here in the midst of this greatest level of persecution that this young church has experienced that we briefly meet a person who later will be used by God to bring the gospel, to proclaim the gospel more widely than anybody else. You ever doubt God's word and its power to save those who are convicted by the Holy Spirit? You ever think that something could stop God's word from increasing, like, I don't know, a murder? You ever get discouraged with the news, with what's happening in this world? You ever think that God is losing? I wonder how many Christians at that moment thought that God was losing. I gave you, I give you exhibit A, Saul. God's radical grace will be shown to and through Saul. God uses the man who would describe himself as the worst of sinners. Not only does this say to you and me that we, in whatever state we are, we can be used by God, but this offers hope to sinners like you and me that feel as though sometimes we're unforgivable. Saul reminds us that we can never write off others or ourselves as beyond redemption. The man who approved of the execution of a man who preached the message about Jesus will himself be executed for proclaiming that message. So let's remember this truth. God is the one who saves God is the one who takes a heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh that enables us to believe. But don't ever think that God's grace isn't radical enough to save the most depraved person. We were all destined to the same location, regardless of your story. It was God who intervened in your life. So parents, regardless of however old you are, Parents, don't stop praying for your child. Don't ever think they've gone too far. 
God is able to save from the outermost. Don't stop praying for your friends, your family, your loved ones, and don't ever stop proclaiming the gospel. It's the most powerful tool we have. So what, you may ask? Stephen is dragged before the religious leaders for challenging the temple and accusing the religious leaders. Stephen's proclamation of the message about Jesus provokes fury in the Sanhedrin, and they drag him outside and they stone him. Every part of Stephen's life is occupied by the Spirit. The gospel has gone into every part of Stephen's life. He sees, we see a man who's an example of selfless love. The gospel is such a part of him that even as he faces an unjust death at people who gnashed their teeth and were so full of rage at the message about Jesus that he just spoke that they killed him for it in an angry mob, forgave them. Just as Jesus did. Can you think outside of Jesus Christ, (laughs) any greater example of loving your enemies? I don't think you can. And how can Stephen do this? What motivates him to do this? It's God's grace. It's God's grace that motivates his people to mercy. But grow in the grace and the knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is what Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 18. It's one of my favorite verses. As a youth pastor, I would put it on every card that w- for a student that would graduate. May you grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because that's how Stephen could do this. Stephen's actions are motivated by the gospel. That's who he is. Our world is all about getting revenge. Our world has almost no motivation to truly forgive. And not only that, it's pretty powerless to do it because you can't do that unless you know the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. So think about what Christ has done for you. We've sung these songs, we've taken part in communion, we've gone to shake hands with other people that you probably would not have known outside of God's grace. Think about all that God has done for you through his son, Jesus Christ. It's because of Jesus Christ dying for our sins and rising again that we can be merciful towards those who don't deserve it. God's grace motivates his people to mercy. Richard Sibbs is a a Puritan from the 1500s. He put it this way. Objection, he says, We may say this, but I have often relapsed and fallen into the same sin again and again. Answer, if Christ will have us pardon our brothers 77 times, can we think he will press us to do more than he has already done himself? God's grace motivates his people to mercy. Let's pray. Father, help us to grow in the grace 